The following program is a podcast1.com production. Brady Sinellis, and you're listening to the Brady Sinellis podcast. And I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with the novelist and screenwriter Bruce Wagner. The most interesting American movie that has opened theatrically this year in 2015 so far is David Cronenberg's Hollywood set Maps of the Stars, written by Bruce Wagner and starring Julianne Moore. It was given a brief release here in L.A. and in New York for Oscar consideration last December, but it was so under the radar that I didn't realize it had even played until a few cinephile friends and one or two Academy members mentioned it to me admiringly over the holidays. Calling Maps of the Stars the most interesting American movie of 2015 maybe seems like a backhanded compliment since there has been nothing released this year so far. It's April now that I could even recommend, except for the violent Argentine comedy Wild Tales. Wild Tales, six separate stories, moral fables, dealing with the theme of rage, was produced by Pedro Malvador, and it shares his penchant for outrageousness and, let's face it, his penchant for slickness as well, and yet it's elegant and contained, and it's the filmmaking control, neutral, verging on laconic, that makes the beatings, the killings, the bombings, the destruction of an upscale wedding even funnier than if they were filmed in such a way that commented on knowing that it was all funny. This is a problem with pretty much any American comedy coming from the studio system now, pressing down on visual cues to ensure that everybody gets the joke. Wild Tales is the fastest and funniest European movie to open theatrically in this country in a couple of years, and Wild Tales was nominated for an Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, and it lost to Ida from Poland, and it is also the highest-grossing movie ever in Argentina. And it takes its cues from a kind of sick joke grab bag. A road rage moment escalates into an insanely violent and comic physical fight. A demolitions expert is confronted with the logic of Argentina's ludicrous and Byzantine bureaucracy and uses his special skills as revenge. A rich kid hits a pregnant woman with his father's car, and the father and the father's lawyer come up with a plan for the gardener to take the rap. And, of course, that wedding where the young bride realizes her new husband is still screwing a girl who was at the wedding, and the ballroom where the wedding reception is taking place becomes a literal battleground. Wild Tales goes dark at times, but one of the reasons behind its popularity is that the moral chaos is always resolved. The movie, in a way, is about problem-solving and ultimately making amends. Whatever fate befalls these characters, ultimately there's a clear resolution, and this is usually accompanied in the audience with a smile or a big laugh. In its odd way, it is a feel-good movie because order is restored. Maps of the Stars is not a feel-good movie. It is, in fact, quite the opposite, a feel-bad movie, which is why I think it has polarized 
polarized viewers, but it's also why for some of us it is a darkly thrilling experience. The Hollywood horror film, the Hollywood gothic, movies made about Hollywood, or if not about Hollywood in particular, but just set within its enclave, are usually feel-bad and ironic opportunities mapped out and achieved. From Sunset Boulevard to In a Lonely Place to Played As It Lays to The Day of the Locust to Barton Fink to Mulholland Drive, there's a hallowed history of movies about the place movies are made as a world where the void is glimpsed, where the abyss is always floating somewhere near that lit pool in the backyard by the palm trees, the negative energy pulsing beneath the flat blue sky. Mouse to the Stars is the darkest movie ever made about people working within the Hollywood system, and delightfully so, but with a poker face. Though, again, it's ultimately not about Hollywood. It's a melodrama set within Hollywood. The cast includes a very famous but fading and desperate actress hitting middle age, played by Julianne Moore, who won Best Actress at Cannes, where uh, the movie premiered last year. Her new personal assistant with a mysterious past, a TV psychotherapist, a limousine driver and struggling actor who wants to be a screenwriter, an unhinged showbiz mom, and a famous teen star just out of rehab. And they are all ultimately connected, even if some of them don't know it. And they have their own kind of language, speaking to each other in a kind of code. The dialogue, always verging on naturalism, has a poetry to it that the actors and the director are inspired by to give a gravitas to, sometimes an obscene poetry. And Maps to the Stars is never afraid to go there. The sense of isolation the film imposes gives it a hermetic power. The problem that people had about processing Maps to the Stars is that it isn't a simple Hollywood takedown. It's not an overt satire about Hollywood. Again, it's a melodrama, a ghost story, an allegory, a tragedy, and everything is laid out very cleanly by the screenwriter. You, You completely understand at every moment what is happening, who is who, even as the secrets are constantly being revealed, and Maps to the Stars keeps revealing new secrets with each subsequent viewing. I found it's not an easy film to take. At times, you have to steal yourself. The vacuum it's sealed in is imposing. But who said movies have to be easy to take anyway? For those of us who have been reading Bruce Wagner for the past two decades, Maps of the Stars is like a dream version of a Bruce Wagner novel, and it retains the complexity of a Bruce Wagner novel with the financial resources of about, I think it's about $13 million, to make it look and seem large-scale, a kind of summing up of all his themes and obsessions, stunningly shot as a kind of airless, sunlit noir, edited with razor precision, and it's the best and most coherent movie David Cronenberg has made in a decade. Wagner and Cronenberg are working in tandem here. It's a true collaboration. The control they both supply in the writing and the directing is hypnotic. Like most of Wagner's work, it's ostensibly an ensemble, but Julianne Moore forces us to acknowledge her as the center, even though it's really Mia Wasikowska's personal assistant who is the engine of Maps to the Stars. And Moore gives a totally fearless performance that's stunning in its naked ferocity, playing a woman who is both hideous and very human. And it is the role that Moore should have won the Oscar for this year, uh, but there is no way in hell that the Academy would ever reward a movie as scabrous as Maps of the Stars or a character as venal as Havana Seagram. Moore's performance here shows so much more range and daring than anything in the movie that Moore won the Oscar for this year, Still Alice, where she played the noble and suffering victim of early-onset Alzheimer's, a professor with three kids and Alec Baldwin as her husband. When Moore is funny and sexy and radiant and uninhibited, she's a terrific film actress, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Shortcuts, Savage Grace, A Single Man, The Big Lebowski. But Still Alice is a by-the-numbers lifetime movie with zero energy and does not allow Julian Moore to do much of anything. Its only reason to exist is to enshrine her suffering. And I had to walk out somewhere near the end, not because of how much I was moved, but because of how much I wasn't. And I can't stand movies that are begging me to cry. Moore is the third collaborator in a way. And she adds to the power of Cronenberg's vision of the script. And the movie could have been, in the wrong hands, a tonal disaster, even though the script is beautifully written and structured. But it's dicey, risky material. 
And the power comes from an unblinking, fearless neutrality, even in the face of the movie's more shocking scenes. And they include filthy, scatological jokes, full frontal male nudity, a self-immolation, an extremely bloody murder, the death of a child off-screen, and the attempted murder of a child on-screen, suicide and incest. And in a scene that will probably upset people the most, there is the comic accidental shooting of an old English sheepdog. You might be gasping even as you're doubled over with laughter at the sequence. Cronenberg never succumbs to overselling a scene. Viewers need to sort it out for themselves. Horrible people, in the conventional sense, present it with a cool compassion. And this complicated and unsentimental mix is the reason I think that I know people who loved it, and I know people who hated it. I know two people who thought it was the best film from last year, and I also know someone who thought it was the worst, and in a text to me called it disgusting. And Maps of the Stars forces you, among many things, to ask, well, what ultimately is a Hollywood satire? Has anyone really done a satire of Hollywood from the inside, even though writers all the time think that this has happened? I mean, the player by Michael Tolkien is not a satire, as Tolkien and I discussed on this podcast last year. The Last Tycoon by Fitzgerald is not satire, neither is Joan Didion's Played as It Lays or Bud Schulberg's What Makes Sammy Run or Nathaniel West's Day of the Locust. Where is this idea that stems from readers and writers alike that these books and Bruce Wagner's as well, are in fact satires. Wagner has actually asked, I mean, why would you satirize this world? There are so many cliches in Los Angeles in the movie industry. How do you write about an agent or how do you write about a producer? Suggesting that his characters might be performing these jobs because this is simply the milieu that Bruce Wagner grew up in as an L.A. kid, nothing more, and that he has often reminded us that he was not influenced by the writers I mentioned above, but by Dickens and Cervantes and Henry Miller. There hasn't been another writer who has chronicled the contemporary denizens of Los Angeles in novel after novel, from the Bud Wiggins stories in Force Majeure to the cell phone trilogy, I'm Losing You, I'll Let You Go, and Still Holding, to L.A. set books whose casts aren't in the biz, The Family Saga Memorial, and the novellas that make up The Empty Chair. Wagner has created this sprawling, multifaceted world that no other writer has come close to capturing. And in 2012, he published what some, including me, think of as his masterpiece, The Epic Dead Stars, a 600-page knockout that has been called the Ulysses of TMZ Culture, and more on this essential novel later in the podcast. For many of us, the story of Bruce Wagner is well-documented and well-known. He grew up in L.A. on the wrong side of Rodeo Drive, south of Wilshire. He attended Beverly Hills High and dropped out and worked at various jobs, including driving a limousine or writing scripts, not unlike the Robert Pattinson character in Maps of the Stars. At 25, he gets the opportunity to work on a screenplay that is going to be produced by Robert Stigwood, who was a very big deal then. It was called Young Lust. The movie was shot but never properly released, yet the script was well-regarded around town, and it eventually led to a lot of work as a screenwriter and Soon Wagner was making what he considered a lot of money. And the scripts he worked on that did get made include co-writing with Wes Craven, the third installment of Nightmare on Elm Street, and the uh, Paul Bartel comedy scenes from The Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. But Wagner also felt alienated and conflicted by his Hollywood screenwriting experiences, and so he wrote his first book exploring this dissatisfaction called Force Majeure, the Bud Wiggins stories, which seemed to take its cues from F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Pat Hobby stories, which were the last things Fitzgerald would complete before his death about an alcoholic screenwriter in Hollywood, but reimagined and updated and deepened by Wagner. Around this time, there was also the five-hour ABC miniseries, Wild Palms, set within a dystopian L.A. that Wagner created, wrote, and produced with Oliver Stone, who was also tempted at one point to make the Bud Wiggins stories into a movie, which never happened. Wagner has also directed two other movies, one being um, I'm Losing You, an adaptation of the first novel in the Cell Phone Trilogy, and starring Franklin Jella and Andrew McCarthy and um, Women in Film. He is that rare thing, a screenwriter and filmmaker who was primarily known as a novelist, and there really isn't anyone else doing this. Michael Tolkien, the writer of The Player, and who uh, shows up as a character in Dead Stars, as well as myself, and Matthew Weiner, 
who created Mad Men, have talked in this podcast about growing up and being an adolescent in L.A. And for Michael, it was the 60s. For Matthew and I, it was the late 70s, early 80s. Michael's adolescence was the most idyllic, but Matthew's was fraught with anxiety because he felt like an outsider, the Jew at the Harvard School for Boys and in Hancock Park. And I felt somewhere in the middle that there was something magical about you know, growing up out here, and yet there was definitely this harsh vibe because of the milieu, the sophistication of the kids, kids acting much older than they really were. And this could add a layer of unreality. And I remember clearly how much money my classmates had compared to my family. And I was very conscious of this. And the one or two other friends of mine who didn't live in Beverly Hills or Bel Air, and, how, and just how noticeable this all was, you know, the mansions and the canyons, the horse in the stable, the Porsche driving up to the valet at the beach club. As was the fact that there were more than a few students at Buckley, where I went, who were not only the children of movie stars and TV stars and famous musicians, but that they were kids themselves who were in movies and on television. And so my friends and I grew up with an intimate proximity to celebrity. I mean, in terms of going over to a friend's house and their father would be a big producer or run a studio and he's having a cocktail party and there's Mel Gibson, there's Sigourney Weaver. And we began to see fame as kind of not cool and not something to strive for. It was so every day around us. It was kind of uncool, which, you know, shows you how dreadfully sophisticated we were, I guess. But, Bruce, I'm assuming there was something similar at Beverly High in the very late 60s and early 70s when you were there. I really haven't found this anywhere. What was your feeling in that moment? And why did you drop out? And what were the specifics? Were you happy? Were you unhappy? Were you yeah. druggy? Uh, I wasn't druggy. Um I, I came. I lived in a small apartment south of Wilshire, so everything that you you spoke of, having sleepovers at friends' houses that literally had ice cream machines, and and, and there were suddenly servants bringing you food out by the pool, was something that um, that was dreamlike and and impressive, and no one ever came to my house. I simply wouldn't have them over. You know, I lived in a, a dark small apartment. And there was no no desire on their end at all. Um, in fact, um, uh, a friend of mine overdosed and died uh, in high school, and I, I brought my mother to the funeral, and she said to me, "Bruce has a mother." You know, my mother worked at Saks Fifth Avenue. She was, uh, um, you know, worked in the Fifth Avenue Club selling um, dresses to people uh the very people whose houses I slept over uh but I, but I I had uh, I lived on Rodeo Drive South Rodeo down the street from Romanoffs and uh, we lived a few doors away from Broderick Crawford, and um, there were friends of mine that, that uh, were in the business and would come to school still in costume from Bonanza or whatever the fuck it mm-hmm. was that they were shooting. And, uh, you know, uh, one had, uh, at that time, I had a tremendous uh, envy uh, of, of that, of the freedom that, uh, that, and the, the, the peculiar luxury and kind of anarchy uh, pampered anarchy to my mind that that represented but I you know I really peaked in elementary school Beverly Vista you know (laughs) by the time I got to high school I was swamped you know I I simply was um, 
I, I wasn't fully formed, and I had um, socially been very adept and very gregarious uh, as a boy. And and that transition to high school, um, I became absolutely numb. And uh, I remember it was 1970, and there, there was something called Mod 70 where you could customize your, your schedule at school, and it was a kind of chess game you did for kicks. And I wound up one day with three, four-hour study halls a week, and and it was just an absurdity. And uh, that's when I began uh, a series of wanderings, you know. I remember I, I left school, and I literally would throw everything I had away and hitchhike up north. Um, I'd lived in San Francisco when I was four, five, six years old, and it was a kind of mystical destination for me. And I wound up living in a halfway house there at Delancey Street when I was 21. But I, I, I was... Um, unfeeling, you know, I, I, there was a numbness that had set in even before um, my encounter with narcotics. I was what they called then a character, I had a character disorder, you know what I mean? <laughs> so um, I then, uh, you know, I worked in bookstores That's right. in Century City, and I remember um, people that I'd gone to school with, friends, would come in at, at their lunch breaks and see me behind the counter and, and think it was a practical joke of some sort because no one dropped out of school at that right. time. Nobody. And then I drove a limousine and uh, I would um, be at the airport waiting for someone to come in. That was when they, they let uh, they let you up, up to the to gate. gate. Right. And uh, I would see um, wealthy friends get off the plane and I would have to, to you know, duck and weave. Um, but but this, uh, this interest and obsession with me, I, d- I really feel that my interest has always been in extremity, you know, the sacred, right. the sacred and profane, mm-hmm. um, impoverishment of uh, of uh, spiritual impoverishment and an absolute um, financial impoverishment and magnificent riches, mm-hmm. whether they be hollow, uh, hollowly acquired, or or regardless of the consequences, it's in the the interplay. Um, between that mental illness and and uh, a kind of um, maturity or, or groundedness that I find my level. You see, that's my my fetish, my interest, and I think that um, you know I've said this before that that James Elroy um, has a, a genius for what he does, not because his mother was murdered. Um, his, his his ability and his obsessions, my feeling is, uh, James might argue with me, is not a consequence of that because there are so many who have had those pivotal or peculiar moments that should, one would think, would define their art or their craft. I think it's kind of happenstance. So the fact that I grew up in uh, in Beverly Hills, impoverished, so to speak, mm-hmm. slums of, mm-hmm. and was exposed to great fame and also great anguish and failure, let's say, on my father's part, my father's uh, nervous breakdown and, and financial failures, um, is juicy for me, but it doesn't explain why I do what I do. And it gets back to this notion of being a satirist, satire. Yeah. Everywhere you look where you've been written about, that word pops yeah. up all the time. And it gets back to this idea, what would you be satirizing? I mean, yeah. what? I mean, I don't feel when I'm reading your books that this is necessarily – these are satires. I think they're like dramatic narratives mm-hmm. with – 
a lot of humor yeah. in them. But what is this notion? Why does everyone think that if you write about Hollywood, it automatically is yeah. kind of a satire? It's, it's a kind of madness, I think. Yes. Some of it is just sheer um, dumbness. You know, I mean, Cronenberg and I have talked about this. Ultimately, it, it, we've said that anything that is funny and and scathing mm-hmm. is is satirical. You know, right? Uh, at least that's the branding aspect of it. And you know, Maps of the Stars, I pulled from Joe Orton, from Strindberg. You know, mm-hmm. I I was not interested in, and nor am I to this day, in being the the king of the hill of of takedown artists about Hollywood. Right. Hollywood. But there is a kind of madness. For me, I ascribe to the more classical definition of satire, which is Swiftian, mm-hmm. Rabelais, Monty Python. Right. You know that right. that, that um, storied scene in the restaurant. You know, uh, with the the gourmand the exploding. Voice, you know, yeah, yeah. You know. Um, but what I do, there, there's only one segment in all of my work, my nine books in Force Majeure, which is um, Bud Wiggins is has dysentery in Mexico and hallucinates that that Los Angeles is a fascist country and that ICM is where they are torturing prisoners <laughs> in the basement and right. you know that's the only satirical thing I've ever done so it's a kind of um, a kind of insanity I would say really you know well it also I mean so much of what uh, when uh, movies about movies or books about film world are so bleak probably is a mirror to the dissatisfaction creatively so many people feel in the industry and I keep thinking, were the Bud Wiggins stories, was Force Majeure a reaction to what you were going through as a screenwriter in that period? Absolutely. I was corroded you know, uh, and and that's why the Fitzgerald stories, with the frisson that he was going to die before many of them were published, you know, um, they were so cathartic for me because they were so fucking funny, right? And um, you know, the idea. In fact, some of them I, I related to intensely. There was one story where he his car breaks down, his shit car, and and it's right near a limousine. And the the driver is on, on a break. They might even be selling maps to the stars there. And he winds up taking a couple to Shirley Temple's house or something. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. The, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, they were so laugh out loud funny yeah. for me. I mean, that's one thing about Fitzgerald um, that that probably is not talked about as much is is how funny he he was yes. as a writer. So I wanted to take it much further, you know. Um, I wanted to to take those setups much further, you know, the ones that end with uh, the screenwriter um, performing a, a pedophilic act. You know, I wanted to just, uh, as, a, uh, uh, as my own catharsis and my way of, of coping with what I was doing, which was writing two scripts uh, a year for $50,000 a year, having gone from selling ink and toner, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and I was in a, a kind of lockstep, you know, and that was the only way. And, and, and it's still, Brett, the way that I retain my sanity, not because of the business, but my own personal, um, the vagaries of my own internal and chaotic, sometimes chaotic uh, mental landscape is that I, I explore in a kind of um, excavatory or archaeological way the, the, the ruins that constitute my, my greatest fears, my anguish, mm-hmm. and my, my sense of, of doubt and failure, which 
propels me, hopefully, to the stars, you know. Right. Well, you know, the other thing that we've talked about with various writers on the show is the kind of the pragmatism of the screenwriter in a way that you really aren't necessarily the artist at all in that in, in the business you're actually creating something for the real artist of the business which is mm-hmm. the director and it's interesting that you know people tend to forget that Fitzgerald loved movies and that Fitzgerald really believed in them as an art form yeah. and that he was he thought that through his writing he was going to make as great a film yeah. as he did in his fiction and that was of course the losing proposition yeah. and that was the thing that it, unlike Faulkner who got it? Who said yeah. no, knew exactly how but, to? But know that, to, to me, that's what's so touching about yes, Fitzgerald. You know, Falcon could say, "Kid, you know, don't take it seriously." Right. And we all yuck, yuck, yuck um, about it. And uh, you know, uh, I think Fitzgerald, for all his monstrousness, mm-hmm. his alcoholic monstrousness, was was so feminine and so open and so um, destroyed and capable of being destroyed, and yet. Uh, persevered, so that that's what touched me uh, uh, about those stories. And with with Cronenberg, you know, we there was something in you know I've said uh, the, the pod word. It was as if David and I got into that fly pod mm. and, and and commingled because you can't solicit David Cronenberg to to do your script. Hey, David, I've got something that I really like. You can't and. I would never um, dream of doing that. You know, people say, are you going to work with David again? Well, how? You know, right. that's something that, that has to happen. So there, there, were, uh, there was enough overlap between these, um, these two um, tormented Jews to, to <laughs> where there was a, uh, an interplay of themes of mutilation, of uh, mutilation of, of sexuality, of mutilation of family, of mutilation of heart and body. That um, that something appealed to him. I will never know from the depths of him and myself what it was that that made him not be able to let go of that script once he read it. I'm really interested in the genesis of Map to the Stars, and I'm just going to take you through it briefly and tell me if anything is amiss here. You are hired by Oliver Stone to write the adaptation of Force Majeure your first book, and you write a script for him even though you really didn't feel it was true to the book. Maybe it was a script that you felt would be true for Oliver Stone mm-hmm. to direct, yeah. but you felt your adaptation was fake in this way, and so he reads it and then suggests you should direct it, and then you realize you have a script you can't relate to, and not that it was bad, but that it just didn't reflect the story. Mm-hmm. So when you rewrote it, you basically wrote Maps to the Stars. That's correct. Yeah. And so Oliver Stone reads the script and thinks you're insane and nothing ever happens. <laughs> But I'm assuming this is 93, 94, yeah, around there? Is, yeah. But how close was the first draft of Maps of the Stars in terms of structure to what Cronenberg shot? And I don't mean in terms of updating technology and references because, well, you know, obviously you had to do that. But did it remain pretty much intact until Cronenberg attached himself? I mean, I know that he executive produced a movie you directed. I'm losing you. But how did you guys meet and hook up in the first place? Cronenberg and I have the same agent. And, you know, Cronenberg is a book freak. You yes. Know, uh, he's that. more influenced by books than he has movies. And I heard through my agent, maybe it was John Burnham at the time, mm-hmm. that uh, Cronenberg was a fan of my work. 
So, you know, the good groupie that I was, I got on a plane right away and went to see him in Toronto, and our friendship uh, evolved from that. Um, Maps to the Stars really did not change much at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we updated some technology and some a, a few proper names, but proper nouns. But no, it, 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 we made some cuts to it because David likes an eighty-two page script, and you know there there was originally there was something from Strindberg in it. Uh, Mia Wasikowska's character, the personal assistant, was a budding actress, and she was in um, one of uh, uh, Strindberg's what the chamber plays, what they call chamber plays, called the Pelican, which involved a brother and sister who had been massacred in a sense by their mother and uh, the house burns down at the end of it so the fire was a theme and uh, we removed that and some other things because um, David wanted something a little bit more condensed and and, uh, something that that fit better for his uh, cosmology in terms of maps but very little and David you know um, it was really a, a fantasy because he was very much it was very much like having uh, a play on on broadway yeah. uh, where not a word was changed yeah, know. you know and yeah. um so that was um an excitation for me and uh it was very dreamlike the the entire process of being on set and watching watching him work but before then it was a really long dream because it took so long well to get you know together. we we were going to make the movie um Ten years ago, almost. Right. David had flown to New York to meet with Julianne. I remember I found out that we weren't going to make it. I was at the Beverly Hills Hotel, hold up like someone in one of your books or my <laughs> books or someone's books. And, uh, you know, I went into the hospital shortly after that. Uh, you know, it, it, it tipped me over. You know, uh, I, I had, uh, you know, I'd, I'd had a long-term addiction to narcotics and um i had been hospitalized before for that sort of thing and uh you know it it was a constellation of things and and when david called me a few years ago he he simply emailed me i think and he said would you mind if if i reapproached maps to the stars you know well not being in the hospital at the time <laughs> uh no uh, so yes it was all all dreamlike because it's an impossible movie yeah to to sell yes. you know here's yes. here's um the scene where she's on the toilet yes you know. i heard you had problems with other act- yeah. there, there was a time where i think there were other actresses because of scheduling conflicts That's Viggo right. mortensen was going to play the john cusack character at one yeah point. rachel vice i think yeah. At one point, yeah, and right, the infamous toilet scene, yeah, of the stars. One As if that's the most offensive. I know, I know. You know, the, the the scene where they celebrate with a dance, the, the little boys drowning. Yes. You know, compared to the dog shooting, or I right. love even talking about this. You know, the dog shooting, the <laughs> toilet scene. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, Julianne is uh, is fearless. You know, and and um, yes. So we were we were so fortunate and thrilled that all of that worked out. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because I had my run-in with Cronenberg when he was the first director attached to American Psycho, that mm. he was going to direct that film. And I remember thinking, oh, that's very interesting. This was in 92 or 93. And the same thing happened. I remember being uh, a little trepidation I had in meeting him because I'd seen the movies and I really didn't know what to expect. And, of course, he walked into – I think we met at the Carlisle Hotel and he – 
uh, walked in with a nice pair of jeans and a polo shirt tucked in. He was carrying a gym bag. He mm. went to the gym. And he was very soft-spoken. And yeah. he talked about the book. And I was going to do the adaptation. And he said uh, he needed a couple of things from me about that book. He said, I don't really like shooting restaurant scenes. I hate shooting restaurant scenes. So take out all the restaurant <laughs> scenes. And I don't want to shoot a nightclub scene. We're probably not going to have the money to shoot a nightclub scene. So take all the nightclub scenes out. And I really, except for maybe one moment of violence, I don't want a lot of violence in this script. Otherwise, go ahead. Write it. And also, oh, yeah, one other thing. It, I need it to be about 72 pages because it takes me about a minute and a half to shoot a page. Uh, that's just the way I shoot. And so I thought, okay, 72 pages of no restaurant scenes, no night. It was kind of a, um, you know, kind of, what is it, the five obstructions or whatever that Lars von Trimmer, where you're given all of these things you can't do. And maybe it makes you more creative. Maybe it doesn't. I ended up kind of ignoring everything, and I turned in a script to him that he did not like. Mm. And then he hired his own writer. I think the guy wrote um, Dead Ringers, Norman Snyder. Snyder. And that script, no one liked. The producer at Pressman didn't like it. And then David was off the project. And then Oliver Stone stepped in Mm. at a later date to direct it. And then that didn't work. I guess that was in between the time when Mary Heron had been hired and did it. um, It's mysterious. You know, you're you're right that the director is the fountain from which all things flow. And I was uh, very fortunate in in my case in that David and I were cousined or brothered or uh, in in such a way that that we were um, of the same flesh in essence and so there there was never anything in fact I remember uh, the the full frontal scene you talked about everyone but David was startled no one knew what he was going to do that day and and that the the, the actor begins to masturbate mm-hmm. uh, in in a, a very casual way um very real way yeah very real thing, yeah. And, and i remember the comments were we that's not going to stay in the film but <laughs> even people that have worked with cronenberg right. you know what i mean so he's he's uh rather fearless and uncompromising himself and yeah one never knows um what is in uh uh the mind of of a director that you that you deeply trust respect admire and what he's going to pull out of the hat and what as opposed to the marching orders he gives you you know what i mean right what has been your reaction to the reaction to maps of the stars ever since it premiered in Cannes? like dead stars it's been the most divisive um thing i've ever worked on mm-hmm. francine prose just wrote this lovely essay about it in the new york review of books mm-hmm. and uh, the New Yorker uh, pilloried. I mean, you know, when people don't like my shit, it's much like yours. Mm-hmm. They really don't like my shit. Oh, yes. And they come after me uh, in a Frankensteinian way. I mean, it's with torches, you know. Yeah. And what can you do? You know, you can right. you can say one of the cliches like, well, that that's a good thing because that means, you know what I mean? And all, you know, the dogs bark, but the caravan marches on. It's true. One sort of shakes one's head, you, you know, at, at the disparity. I mean, the, the, the abyss between thinking people, and it makes you, it snaps you back into that, that um, mindset of how subjective this world is. It's shocking that we all have a consensus and can, that I can come here to meet with you today because I'm given a time and that you managed <laughs> to get into your car and come here. How does it even happen? 
Um, it's it's just uh, uh, there's a wonderful book that I read recently um, by Pierre Bayard called How to Talk About Books You've Never Read, <laughs> and he's a professor <laughs> of literature in France, and he said you know he's found himself in the uncomfortable position of of discussing books he hasn't read with a group of students who are pretending to have read the book. <laughs> and that happens with films as well. Did this person see the same film that I saw? You know? Yeah. And many people, you know, you, you've said, um, you said earlier that, that it was very clear to you what was going on in mm-hmm. Maps and the plot line. Um, Leonard Cohen saw it. He came to a screening and, and said to me that he, he felt it was diagrammatic. It was diagrammatic. And yet you will find thoughtful reviewers or people that have read, written thoughtful reviews in the past say, I did not know what was going on. And so how do you account for that? Or you can't. And how do you defend it or explain it? You cannot. So uh, it's it's part of that process. But why uh, your movie will be um, one's movie, this movie, Maps, is raped at the same time that it is married by others? I don't know. You know, I don't know. But it is a work of art, whether you like it or not. Mm. It is an art object in a way, a $13 million mm. art mm. object. Yeah. Very brave to finance that, yeah. who, who, people to come up with the money and to let you guys do this. And it seems completely uncorrupted or made by consortium. Uh, you know, that is the, the great gift and miracle of, of this film for me. And we knew in, in Cannes when, when Julianne won, we were surprised. You know, I had gone to see the Grand Prix in Monte Carlo. It's that 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 classic asshole talk show anecdote where I left. You know, I left the building and David uh, was already back in Canada. And I'm checking into my hotel in Monte Carlo and, and you've got to come back. And there's that scene where you're getting your tux pressed and all that. And, and I accepted the award for Julianne. And we didn't tell her about it because we thought, Jesus, you know, what if they fucked up? And, you know, mm-hmm, anything is right. possible. I called her. She was um, in New York uh, at her home and in the kitchen. And But we knew when we weren't picked up by Weinstein or Sony, we knew at that time that the writing was essentially on the wall. It is correct. The movie is an art film. And... Um, what to do with it. Uh, we, we, it was a European-friendly movie, and because Julianne had won the award in Cannes, we, we, we had a small campaign for Golden Globes, which that's why the movie came out. We were not eligible for an Academy Award. Oh, okay. Not only because there were no print ads right, for it, right. um, but we simply didn't have the money to wage that kind of a campaign. It's, it's tremendously expensive yes. to have screenings and parties and all that shit. So she was nominated for a Golden Globe, but yeah, it was uh, it was intensely below the radar. I mean, I remember getting an invitation to a party here to celebrate a Julianne's nomination for Still Holding and Maps to the Stars, and a toast was given at the party, and Maps to the Stars was not mentioned. It's funny you said Still Holding instead of well, Still Alice. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It was another masterpiece book that Bruce wrote. <laughs> Still holding.
Watching the Justin Bieber roast on Comedy Central last month, it was a relief to hear wildly dirty and un-PC jokes being tossed out by white dudes and black dudes and young dudes and old dudes. And Martha Stewart in front of an audience made up of youngish men and women dressed up and laughing hysterically. The roast wasn't that funny, but there were, you know, old lady jokes, ISIS jokes, dumb girls, slut jokes, black jokes, jokes about 9-11. In fact, the youngest member of SNL, Pete Davidson, whose father died on 9-11, who was a firefighter, told a 9-11 joke, and someone else did as well about Pete Davidson's dad. And the roast felt in this moment kind of joyous and rebellious within our increasingly buttoned down and neutered everyone as a victim society. We are in a moment where Trevor Noah is put on the offensive after being hired by The Daily Show to replace Jon Stewart. By suddenly being at the center of this fake outrage controversy about a couple of jokes he tweeted years ago and that were considered by a few oversensitive snowflakes as being misogynistic and anti-Semitic, jokes where the punchlines were fat women or Jews. And these were jokes he posted on Twitter four years ago. And they were just lame jokes. They They weren't dirty. They weren't funny. But certainly within the realm of the innocuous, and he has taken the task for these dumb, clean jokes by people who think he has posted a fat-shaming joke or a joke suggesting that Jews in Hollywood have a lot of money. And suddenly because of this fake internet outrage, and I say manufactured because who could possibly care about this? But it looked for a moment as if Trevor Noah was going to lose this gig. Now, the context of the roast is clear. Anything goes, and you are prepared by the fact that it is a roast, and it will be an insult fest. But watching it, you couldn't help feeling, thank God, someone is still being outrageous, and yes, holding up free speech without getting punished for it, which is what is happening in the culture now. And you know, the left really has been the worst about this recently, chastising people for not bowing down to an imaginary line of politically correct decency, or what they call decency, and not sure what the rule book is, but it's basically we're all victims, and we all need to be very, very careful about offending everyone's delicate sensibilities. If you tell that joke or admit an opinion, you run the risk of, you're triggering me, you're triggering me, where's my safe space, mommy? He's a bad man. He's a very bad man. And it reminds me of something James Joyce realized about himself at an early age as a youngish writer in Ireland, where he said, I have come to the conclusion that I cannot write without offending people. Now, you have also been attacked for crossing the line, Bruce, and people castigating you, as we talked about. Now, your novel, Dead Stars, is really a masterpiece, a 600-page-long epic concerning at least half a dozen storylines crisscrossing each other in contemporary L.A. celebrity culture. The name-dropping is encyclopedic, and every form of perversion is possible. And it is, in every way, maybe the most anti-PC novel I've read in years or ever, if you want to view it primarily through that lens. And I think you wrote it in just about 14 weeks, and I hate you for that. But after you detox from prescription drugs, it's the novel about where we are now in terms of the too much information age. And yet it has offended some people because of how much humor you bring to subjects like, I don't know, teen and child pornography and cancer. And the Wall Street Journal called Dead Stars not just the best novel about America and fame in the last 12 years, but the best since Nathaniel West's The Day of the Locust. And we've also talked about on this podcast, The New York Times, Michiko Kakatani, who uh, when B.J. Novak uh, was taken to task by Michiko last year when she reviewed his, you know, innocuous short story collection. And when one of the characters makes it made a 
Hitler joke, Michiko was not pleased. I don't know if she really placed it within context, but that was a problem BG and I had with Michiko. So she also reviews Dead Stars, and in that review, she first refers to L.A. as, quote-unquote, the wretched excesses of that Sodom and Gomorrah of the West Coast, which would give you a clue as to where Michiko's headspace is. So she accuses you in Dead Star of um, telling gruesome anecdotes with maximum gross-out value. Michiko wrote also about Dead Stars. It's stomach-turning, sick-making, rancid, repugnant, repellent, squalid, odious, fetid, and disgusting. Oh, she, do go on. <laughs> she goes on to catalog the horrors within the book, include photos of dead babies, paparazzi in search of crotch shots of child celebrities, internet posts celebrating an actor getting cancer, violent graphic group sex, parents pimping out their children. One repulsive scene falls another in these pages, drowning the reader in a more than 600-page deep cesspool. Now, myself and others have declared that Dead Stars might be your masterpiece. It was certainly the best American novel I read in 2012. And yes, Dead Stars is often horrifying, but it's also filled with tenderness and compassion amidst the horrors. And it has a stylistic ingenuity that makes most novels now just seem dull. And the horrors, if you are following the culture right now, are not that far-fetched. It's not that much of an exaggeration. And it's fine that Kakatani doesn't like the book. It's just that the reasons seem slightly moralistic. Like so much of the culture misreads everyone because they need to be on their best behavior, which is, you know, just how it is. Now, I want to ask you, what? well, first of all, what are your feelings about a kind of a, the lack of context culture we live in now? And I also want to know, where were you when you decided to write this book? What was going on in your life? And yeah. how did this thing just pour out of you yeah. in that, in that well, length of time? Well, you know, you, you, you we'll talk about branding in a minute. But I was in, uh, this is about five years ago, and I'd finally gotten clean, you know, for the last time. And I was um, out of rehab i was in arizona for a few months and i got back to to la and and i had had the idea for my novel the empty chair in my head in fact you know wally sean is a friend of mine and he used to for christmas or special occasions go to people's houses and read the fever you know he would enact it in their living room for 10 or 12 people so i would do that with the empty chair because I knew it, uh, the, and so I would do it as if an oral tradition. I would tell the, these, the story of the empty chair to people in their homes. When I got out of rehab, I was so addled that I couldn't figure out how to sit down and write. You know, I, There was a transition period for me back into the real world. So I, I hired someone. It was my friend Jesse Dillon's assistant. She came to the house, and I dictated to her, just as I'd read in, in my friend's living rooms. She, she wrote it down, and we got about 60 or 80 pages into it, and I said, all right, I think I can take it from here. And I, I read what she had transcribed and it was awful but I started to correct that and that was my road back I finished the book and turned it into Simon & Schuster my, my, my publisher David Rosenthal had, was no longer there had left and I turned that book in and they said this was not the book we were expecting from the Hollywood the scabrous Hollywood <coughs> observer Bruce Wagner and uh, and I didn't want to pursue it with them. So um, what what David did is he we bought the book back from them and agreed that it would be my next book. And I said they want the Scabers Hollywood novel. I'll give it to them. And I used all that 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 
freshly sober, raw, fiery energy. And I took no prisoners. I, I thought, I am not going to, um, to censor anything. And it was a, 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 the template was lovely for me because I could inhabit the, the bodies and voices in a more traditional sense of Bud Wiggins, Michael Douglas, mm-hmm. etc. And then I could do the methamphetamine-addicted paparazzo um, and, and explore all of those things in a way that was disjointed, uh, stylistically, narratively disjointed. So I had the best of both worlds. And I, 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 I just decided that I would, um, it would be no holds barred, that I would not have that voice that, that, uh, I'm, that all writers have at a certain point, I think, at least I have it, have I gone too far? Have I said the wrong thing? You know, right. and I don't. I'm. My world is not uh, ruled by that voice, but that voice is there. You know, yeah. it's, it's there because I'm reminded of it constantly. You know, I give a book like The Empty Chair to someone, mm-hmm. and they said, I, I, and I'm thinking like the Chrysanthemum Palace. Mm-hmm. It's one of my more gentle, yeah. you know, evocations. And and they said, oh, no, when the little boy hanged Hang himself, himself, you know, yeah. uh, I just had someone that you know. And then I go, oh shit, why didn't I give that? I had in Dead Stars, um, I was thanking so many people. I saw that at the end of it. Yeah, and you among them. And and, uh, one of the people I thanked, uh, it was uh, someone that had been a benefactor for me, a patron in the past, a gentleman, and I thanked him and his wife and uh, their dog. I named the dog. And I got an email from him, very cold, um, uh, a few months after the book came out, that please remove uh, his wife and the dog from the dedication page. (laughs) What is that about? Well, I just think the wife was so offended by the... She had been a reader of my books and and was so That's offended ridiculous. by 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 dead stars that she she uh, wanted her name removed from it but this is the, this is the fate one has, but one gets branded Bruce Wagner right. is yes. the person that does the takedown yes and and it's like that book that I was talking about how to talk about books you haven't read um, he makes a good argument that one can read you know uh, eight pages of Proust and and have a sense of what that means you know what does Don Quixote mean well it's it's tilting at windmills and mm-hmm. uh, you know so uh, Don Quixote for me if I had ne- I, I did read it and and it was one of the most Extraordinary experiences of my life. One of the most emotional and moving experiences of my life. You know, there's this famous quote from Dostoevsky that it was the saddest book ever written. You know, so I think on on some level, uh, I I the books that I write, I I aspire to be the saddest books and uh, ever written, but also the most tender or joyous or mm-hmm. or transcendent books. That's what I aspire to. You know, yeah. I don't succeed, but I try. You know. Well, the one thing that I thought about as I was putting the final touches on American Psycho was I fear, and I still do, I I haven't reread the book in 20 years, but I fear that there was an earnestness to it 
no matter what I did with it, that there was no way of escaping that. There was this yuppie in Manhattan at the end of the 1980s, and there's just no way to not read a message in that, that Patrick Bateman becomes a metaphor for the excesses of a decade, when in fact the book came from a personal place of working out pain and mm-hmm. having to become an adult and wanting to stay a boy in a way, and my rage at society. And, I, you know, where else was I going to go? You you find society hideous, but you still want to be accepted and you want to be in society. So it's, a, it's, it's this mix of this, this kind of idea that I've had about earnestness. How do you propel yourself away from the earnestness? And, and how do you escape, like what you were just talking about, how do you escape a reader's feelings about you? I mean, it's something you really do have to take out of the equation when you're putting yeah. a book together. And also when you're putting a book together, you are two writers in a way. You are There's the emotional writer who is pouring all of this stuff out, and then there is the technician who is trying to move these two things so that they're running parallel on the same course. Yeah, you know, Cronenberg's just done that in a book that he wrote called Consumed. I took is, a look at it, yeah. Which is uh, an extraordinary book. American Psycho to me was important because I remember at a, a certain age going into Book Soup or, or Brentano's and, and looking finally at, at Sod and uh, 120 Days of, of Sodom and being absolutely viscerally stunned that that not at, not only at what was written but that it was allowed to be sold and that was an absolute epiphany for me that of the danger uh, how dangerous art could be mm-hmm. and and that it managed to it was so surreptitious that it was being sold in a place of business uh, and and American psycho was an embodiment of that for me right. I feel that if one one's sensibilities are so extreme that that earnestness and sentimentality be damned yes. it doesn't matter yeah. Yeah. and I also you know um, so many uh, people that that I, I artists that I love, um, Cronenberg, Todd Solon's, um, absolutely uh, sentimentality, quote, is anathema. But what is sentimentality? You get into that thing, what is satire? For me, the, 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 the thing that, that turns people off, let's say, about Dickens, in the brand sense, is so-called sentimentality. Uh, this overabundance of emotion i i grok to that i adore that you know uh it's 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 sensual to me it's as sensual as words themselves words have a sentimentality independent of even context the sound of a word the spelling of words so I don't have a problem with earnestness, so-called, or or something. When earnestness is not backed up by anything revelatory, that's a problem. Right, and we all we just said something about even stylistically the way for you as well as for me when I opened up Ulysses for the first time and I saw that giant S and I saw the way the chapters were put together, the advertising chapter, the that's chapter, right, in yeah. the bar, or even something like I remember looking at Played as It Lays, the Joan Didion novel, and seeing all of this white and these words just floating on these white. It depends upon also what stage of your development. You know what I mean? Right. For me, at 16, Henry Miller, mm-hmm. I had never read anything like that. You know. Now, that's not to say that I've gone moved beyond Henry Miller. I mean, I was not a character. I 
hated Kerouac. I was really in uh-huh. Capote's camp. You know, yeah. that's not writing, that's typing. Now I see Kerouac of being Whitmanesque proportions. But the books that that give him that sense for me are the ones that are unread. On the road, I I don't think is a good book. No, I don't either. And, I don't and either. you know, I could say that about Gatsby as well. I don't. But uh, Big Sur and Vill- Visions of Deleuze. These, I mean, what he was doing. And back to Bayard, the books that one talks about, but the world does not read or or one misinterprets or misreads oneself, are for me what give him his heft and his weight. Uh, So uh, Ulysses, of course, and still dumbfounds today. But Dickens was that way for me as well. David Copperfield, that beginning about the Brontosaurus, I thought, uh, What? You know, ah, this is Dickens, not Christmas Carol. Well, what about the fog at the opening of Bleak House? I mean, yeah. you know, and also- that's that's what I'm talking about. The Brontosaurus, the fog. Well, that's right, Bleak right, House. Right, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah. The fog. You are really a believer because you write big novels. You publish them. I mean, I haven't published a novel in a very long time. What is going on in in, in publishing and and publishing a book? I mean, how do you feel about it? I mean, for good is it is it different than it was fifteen years ago? What is your? You know, I don't have any global <laughs> thoughts on that because I'm so insulated. You know, I have the good fortune to have an editor and a publisher, uh, Sarah Hockman and, and David Rosenthal, that have stood behind me. You know, uh, I have Andrew Wiley as my agent. I'm very fortunate in that my books, uh, uh, certainly to say mainstream would be an absurdity, but my books don't sell. They, they get a lot of attention, but I'm, I'm, I'm someone that needs to do other things uh, if I'm to maintain my startlingly <laughs> lavish lifestyle. You know, um, So, you know, I'm a made man in that sense and very fortunate. Yes. What would I be doing if I was uh, 20? or 28 or mm-hmm. or 33 without having published something, I don't know. Because when it happened for me with I'm Losing You, I had no sense at that time how fortunate I was that John Updike was reviewing my book for The New Yorker or that that uh, this person or that was saying these or that lovely things. Now, I'm, I'm Losing You was certainly not a phenomenon in any sense that approaches uh, the things you've done. But in my own way, I got lucky. And it's so much about luck, Brett. It's so much about luck. You can have genius, you can struggle, you can, uh, this or that can happen. It's luck. You know, um, and for me, it, I got lucky with Maps to the Stars. Uh, Maps to the Stars for me was always a worthy thing. But if not for my having met David Cronenberg, if not for the movie Falling Out, and then uh, with Cosmopolis, Rob Pattinson's interest, and mm-hmm. David's continued interest is the, the most essential thing. How do you explain that? It's luck. It's not right. the merits or demerits of the project. Right. Relatability and identifying uh, with things are kind of the cause right now. The fact that you constantly hear, well, I couldn't relate to it, therefore I don't like it. I didn't identify with it, so why should I read, listen to it? Kind of this new call in the culture, and you hear it all of the time now. This idea that people are now rejecting art that isn't a mere image of their experiences, you know, kind of like the 
Is it the death knell of art? You know, it's an extension of that defense. Well, I wasn't born yet. You know that I kept hearing about four or five years ago. I would hear from younger people when I would mention a novel, a band, a film, mm-hmm. and I would be surprised that they wouldn't know who, say, what an early Rolling Stone record was or a uh, Godard film. And, and I'm talking about culturally with it kind of kids. But th- this this reaction was always, well, why are you so surprised? I wasn't born yet, meaning that only things, that, mm-hmm. the only cultural things. Yeah. Whereas. Of course, like, you know, I'm not not doing the good old days thing, but I just remember that when I was interested in something as a kid, I, did, I became a bit of a curator. You know, I went back. Mm-hmm. Oh, Godard. Okay, I want to see these early films. I wasn't born yet either, but I do understand it. because of the overload of information, how can they? You know, how can you? There's so much. Yeah. There wasn't so much. When I, well, you know, I, I think, again, it's, it's case by case. For me, uh, no one approaches... Xavier Dolan, 25-year-old filmmaker from Montreal, Mm -hmm. uh, who possesses a a Wellesian kind of genius for me. I'm leaving Cronenberg out of this for (laughs) now. uh, It's a different story. But we're talking about youth. No one has uh, the the operatic and literate uh, control and and lack of control. Lack of control, I would also say. But for me, there's a passionate connection that I can make to him. And I would say, well, it's impossible to have a creature like Xavier Dolan now. And yet, there's Xavier Dolan, right. and and you know, you, you, so many things. Uh, we have both been accused of this of of too many uh, using too many real people mm-hmm. in a book and products, etc. Well, you'll have people say, well, Henry James didn't do that pointedly. He 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 could have done that, but he didn't. And then you'll have other people. It's the Wall Street Journal Kakatani mm-hmm. argument. You can't do that. You can do that. So I myself write for. Forever, you know, for, right? And I and I write for now. I'll just tell you one one very strange and funny thing that happened to me. I was working on a new book that I'm writing now, mm-hmm. and there's a scene. It, it, this new book began as a kind of flip side or compliment to Maps to the Stars, and it postulated that Julianne Moore's character Havana Sagran was a, 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 a an Academy Award winner, much mm-hmm. like Julianne, but had come out as being gay many years ago um, before Ellen DeGeneres, and it was a much heavier cultural thing because she was a movie star. And there's a in my book, she wants to make a documentary about something very personal. She's looking for a daughter that she gave up when she was 16. So she calls Laura Poitras out of the blue. Mm-hmm. And Laura Poitras, in my book, and Julianne Moore's character, <laughs> go to Mr. Chow and have dinner. And as I, I wrote this scene, and I, I you know, went on YouTube just to see how Laura speaks, mm-hmm. the cadence, whatever, I knew what she looked like from photos, and uh, then I had seen her at the New York Film Festival because Maps had, had was there as well as as her film uh, about Edward Snowden. So I, I finished the scene, which is really like a portrait of her, you know, a thumbnail portrait, a four-page scene with a lot of dialogue that she speaks. About two weeks after, she came into where I was working, and I I went across the way and I said, Laura. I'm Bruce Wagner, and I quickly said that I've seen her film, and I talked about maps. She turned out to be a Cronenberg fan, and we wound up having lunch together. And she wanted to know all about 
this book I was working on. She's very much that way, very laser-focused, journalistic. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, I'm gonna, I have to tell you something, that you're in the book. And there's a, a chapter that I wrote a few weeks ago. And at the time, I had to really make it fit because I knew she lived in Berlin and does it make sense that she's out because my books have to have a veracity. So she said, I want to read it. So a few minutes later, I found myself sitting across from Laura Poitras as she reads on my iPad a chapter, a a very specific portrait of her as a human being speaking words that I put into her mouth. Mm -hmm. And she didn't look up at all. As she's reading, all she said was, this is surreal. This is surreal. This is surreal. And when she finished, she looked up at me and she said, that was surreal. And I said, well, and she said, as I was reading what I said, I thought, yeah, I might, I might say that. I might say that. I might say that. So, you know, you know as, a, as a novelist, you get into this kind of dream, and you pull in odd things, and hopefully you pull in the energy, uh, no matter how jagged or, or, or earnest, that is in the zeitgeist. And it reflects your personality as well. This so-called earnestness that you, you felt was creeping into American Psycho, which is funny to me anyway. Mm-hmm. That, um, but but there's an earnest, you have an earnestness, not mm-hmm. pejorative, to no, Brett of Ellis. Course, of course. You, you have a tenderness. Right. So it's our fear, or are they going to see too much of that? Right. I think that earnestness came from being uh, much younger and not wanting to be earnest as much as I don't care now, and I like being earnest. I'm now. sleeping with your mother, by the way. <laughs> I love Dale. Please say oh, hello to her. I will. I will. I will. Play her just this part. <laughs> oh, um, I've always felt I was a big brother to you. Really? Yeah. I felt that way too. But then uh, you kind of disappeared. Well, you know. Uh, but but I hear that that is your roll back the tape. <laughs> <laughs> but that has been your mo. Yeah. That, yeah. You just kind of come in and out of people's yeah. lives. Yeah. On this podcast. We've been talking a lot about film versus television and that TV is basically informational and movies are basically about mood and atmosphere, that TV shows are just about getting out as much information as possible, that they're all kind of created in, you know, kind of in a stack. You're going to shoot the stack and you don't also have the money for mood and atmosphere. You don't have the money for kind of a visual nuance. You're talking about in in, in television. It's in almost television. the opposite now. Well, you don't have the money for movies. You have it in TV, you know. Well, or for a certain kind of yeah. movie, even like something like Under the Skin, which doesn't look like TV. Yeah. It looks like, yeah. you know, Matthew Weiner was on, and he had he snapped at me on this podcast. Actually chided me. Chided me. He didn't <laughs> snap at me. He snapped a lot. But when I was talking about this with him, because I, I love Mad Men. I think Mad Men mm-hmm. is really great. But the way that everyone is talking about TV is this golden moment in content creation that has somehow eclipsed the movies artistically, okay, fine. In terms of being at the center of the intelligentsia or whatever, yes, TV is being talked about much more. But really, is it at a stage yet where it can let the camera be as much of a character as a movie can, whether it's Gravity or Birdman or, you know, whatever? Is it? And, I mean... The costume designer, the art director, um, the cinematographer are also vital in terms of uh, creating film. But really, basically, TV is a writer's medium, and film is a director's medium. And I think there's a big difference when we start talking about TV as being this or that, and movies being this, you know, instead. 
Matthew took me to task about this and brought up the Godfather part too. And he said, Fredo being shot on the lake is in the script, Brett. And he quoted whatever the stage direction was and that it was solely powerful because the writer had thought it up. And that's kind of the TV mentality mm-hmm. right now. But I would really argue, and I didn't. I just He was very passionate about this. And I thought, well, where's Gordon Willis in this? Where's Dean Tavaloris, who designed this? Mm-hmm. The music that plays over that shot. Who decided to shoot it from that, that distance? Why didn't they put the camera in the boat? And you see Fredo getting shot in the head. So it really is such a collaborative thing. And Matthew's take was everything is about the writer. It's all mm-hmm. about the writer. And this has permeated into the culture especially with TV being elevated to this thing where it really is, you know, the writer's medium. But it's it's information being given. TV is people just giving information to each other. And, mm-hmm. and the camera does not act as a character. Now, you might argue that in many movies it doesn't either. And there's a, movies are kind of terrible now. But every now and then there are a handful of movies that you see that remind you that, okay, this is the possibility of the medium. I don't know. I think there's a lot of shit on TV. And I don't really know if there's any great shows on yeah, I I love Matthew Weiner and and that show um, as as well. Um, I I would uh, uh, my belief is that that as a writer, um, one's impulse is to create something. This is an historical impulse, perhaps in Hollywood, to create something that a director or anyone else can't fuck up too badly. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the the uh, I, I believe, uh, interestingly enough, that um, if I have it right, that that uh, it was Coppola's idea to kill Fredo, not Mario Puzo. Mm-hmm. I think Mario Puzo fought him on that. Said it was too much. So there you have uh, Coppola is a writer as well, but you cannot. You know, if if you were to say that, you could say that that. Um, Rob Reiner could have shot The Godfather, or Ron Howard, mm-hmm. you know, uh, who's not without talent mm-hmm. and can can do serious things, and you would have had the same film ultimately, plus or minus smudgy. It's it's you can't say that. You know what I mean? You you yourself said that um, that that another director doing Maps to the Stars could have been it would have been catastrophic. You don't think so? I yes. Think so. No, yes, no. Yes, but yes. what I'm saying is that that I can't say that that victory dance that Julianne Moore and Mia did over the dead boy in someone else's hands would have worked. Uh, that the entire movie, all the components of the movie. Would, so a writer can 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 have uh, uh, in terms of the narrative can can seize on something that is so compelling um, or so almost mythological as in The Godfather, but the execution of it is solely dependent on on, on the director, of course, the, the, the DP and everything else. So, But I, I think that in, in television, which comes from budget constraints mm-hmm. and this has to be done before commercial break. I mean, that's in DNA. You know, that, that takes a long time to be weeded out. Would David Lynch have done something cinematic uh, if they did Twin Peaks again? It doesn't look like he's going to do it, but he would have had the wherewithal to do that. You know what I mean? But I think 
you know, you have to have so much power to, to do something cinematic and you have to have the desire, the wish. You know, you, people say Game, Game of Thrones is, is terribly cinematic, but not in the sense I, I believe that you're talking about. Well, not in the sense that you can tell it looks like television. They really, even for Game of Thrones, they still really don't have the money. But it is shifting because there are so many new, uh, I guess you could say that the, that, that bridge was being dissolved between movies and television with the true detective. Um, but they had a ton of money. They also had a ton of money to make that. But we uh, were at the Venice Film Festival in 2013 mm-hmm. together and yeah. didn't know you were going to be there. We bumped into each yeah. other on the plane. I was there uh, kind of on a promotional thing, so I really didn't get to go to a lot of the movies that were playing there. Uh, you were there with Carrie Fisher. I was mm-hmm. there with Paul Schrader. And Paul Schrader had to see a lot of the films because he was head of the jury. And Carrie was on the jury. And I didn't see any of the films there, but I remember that you did go to a lot of the movies that were at the festival. Mm-hmm. Do you go to a lot of movies now? No. When's the last time you went to a theater to see a film? I, you know, I, I would say that... Um uh, Mr. Turner, I think, you know. Um, you went to see that on a big screen or did you just yeah. have to go to No, I went to see it, mm-hmm. you know, and I loved it, you know. Mm-hmm. There is an art, uh, uh, an artful uh, movie, um, complex and um, and inspiring uh, anguish and, and awe. And then we there was the Turner exhibit here at the Getty, which, which uh, gave me the same feeling yeah. as the film. You know, um, you, you see... Uh, his visionary work being um, urinated on by critics and a lot of the public, and and you see the the, the profound um, genius of his vision, you know. Um, so that that you know, I, I've said this before uh, to you, even directly, that for me, um, and something that is art is identifiable in that it makes one wish desire to make more art to to go back to one's own studio or the room of one's own and and create you know that to me is is a test for that um so uh, uh, but i don't go to to movies i go to you know i i i go to giant movies like uh, guardians of the galaxy we were talking about you know mm-hmm. and I, I can get you know very emotional about movies like that i you know i, I love that movie you know i like so it too i'm i'm high and low you know what i mean yeah and and uh and and in a sense i think that's a lot of what my my art and my novels aspire to you know i think map certainly is high and low it's yes. got <clears throat> it begins as something that you think is going to catapult you uh, into those satirical realms that everyone's obsessed by uh, and ends with uh, you, you know the, the thread of this Paul Eluard poem is all through the film mm-hmm. and, and um, it, it's a poem to me Maps of the Stars is, is a fever dream and a poem and uh, for people that say it's, it's tonally jumbled or whatever mm-hmm. the fuck they say <laughs> you know welcome to the world of art you know uh, so uh, but I don't, I don't as a rule it's tough for me it's like going to a restaurant you know there's so much debris on the way uh, to to navigate that I, I just you know it sounds precious but I can't deal with going to the Grove or Arclight you know what I mean I, it's just it's it's rough on my nerves you know Brett really, I'm very even, sensitive even in like the middle of the afternoon at like 4 o'clock where there's no one in I used to do that but at my age <laughs> see you revel in that and I used to say the same thing in 10 years the idea is going to be repugnant to you. 
it all it almost already is. I mean, it all, almost already is repugnant. I don't know. I see few movies too as well. But um, but I just want to know one thing about um, and I don't. How did it happen that you have a cameo in the new Terrence Malick movie, Night of Cops? How did that come about? And what were you doing in the scene? I haven't seen it. I mean, oh, I'll tell you. I I got a call. Um, from Wally Shawn, who who went to Harvard. I mean, he goes so far back with Terry Malick, and he said that Terry Malick wants you to play yourself in a film, you know, and uh, a party scene in Hollywood. So I wrote Wally and I said, "Am I going to be humiliated by this?" And Wally said. Uh, you're talking to someone that has made a living from being humiliated in party scenes like this, you know. So I went to uh, the set. It was this this mansion in uh, you know uh, in the hills, and I was in the green room, which was the lavish you know ten thousand square foot basement of the you know, pristine of this this kind of Persian palace. And Frida Pinto was in the green room suddenly, and they said um, Terry wants to see you now. And on my way from base camp to the the location you kept hearing on the walkie you know did they cut did they cut you never know when they cut do we ever know it's it's kind of like that so i I, they introduced me to terry malick and it's full dress they're in the middle of shooting it wasn't like ramping up to something and terry introduced himself and said um you're going to interrupt um oh he said i'm sorry this is antonio banderas and this is Christian Bale. This is Bruce. And, uh, Antonio and Christian are going to be talking. I want you to interrupt them. And I said, okay, and? You said, just interrupt them and say what? Uh, just, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? And I later found out that actors say it's called torpedoing. It's the technique of his. You torpedo. I want you to torpedo those two people. So I did that, and I was a little bit... Um, rattled at first, you know, and then we went outside and did it, and the camera never stops rolling, so there comes this time because it's cyclical, the energy cyclical where everyone thinks they've cut and, and suddenly the, the, the first says, we haven't cut, we're still you know, and everyone goes back to doing whatever ancillary activity they were doing, but I remember I was, it was a long monologue I was doing to Christian Bale about sudden death, because I was trying to pull from anything and I was writing at the time about sudden death, you know, this western comfortable notion that we're going to have a third act, you know, where we're going to be at Cedars Sinai having morphine while those we love. No, I'm sorry. Not a guarantee. So I was talking to Christian Bale about this as part of my epic, absurd, nervous, frightened improv and realized he had just gotten back from Colorado where he'd been visiting survivors of the Batman massacre. And so I felt extremely uncomfortable suddenly. Anyway, it went on and on, and and, uh, at a certain point, Malik wanted me to join a Congo line, and people were being thrown into pools, and I just said, Terry, I can't. You know, I can't do that. And he didn't, it didn't matter to him. But it was very much like someone, like his, his, um, his big brother was Larry Ellison, who had, the pocketbook was bottomless, and said, my brother wants to direct. I want you to take good care of him on the set. And he hired the best people possible. I'm just saying that would be the impression, you know. But I, I, I adored him and, and the experience of it, you know. I have no idea um, what I, what was kept because he's notorious. I didn't think I was going to be in the movie at all because he cuts out Every, major actors, you right, know. Stars. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's not too awful. You know? And are you ever going to or do you have any desire to direct again? Yeah, you know, I just ran into. 
my old friend Wally Pfister, who did oh, the Chris, Chris Nolan's movies, and he was um, he was assisted Faden Papa Michael on Wild Palms, and I said, you know, Wally, we should do like a a, a, a five million dollar Boonwellian comedy, you know. So I'm thinking if I can do something that's so radical, you know. Um, uh, and contained and doable, you know, it is something that that appeals to me. You know, when I did I'm Losing You, I was not ready to direct a film, and and um, and it was a bit funereal. Uh, and Women in Film was a digital film, something that I grabbed from I'm Losing You, and and it was much more plastic and fluent. And but you know, the idea of sitting down writing a book that will be published a year later unadulterated versus script and then chasing unknown elements uh, and, and and having uh, a thousand meetings with with people that will never return your call again is is not so appealing. You know what I mean? Though even though in this in the DIY culture yeah. of this moment where Joe Swanberg just says, I'm gonna make a movie for fifteen thousand dollars. Do it Canyon style. You know, that right, I right. so admired that about um, yeah. Canyons. You know, uh, I think it is doable. You can you know but I ha- I have to get it up to do that, you know, and, and yeah. my, my energies have been so diffused, not just with maps, but the new book that I wrote, and I wrote another script, you know, I was telling you about Hemingway's Transgender Son. Now I'm a little bit in the clear, but life is vicious and unrelenting and grotesque, as you know. Yes, I do. 